and welcome to the Autism Hour podcast, where we view each and every individual as valuable and capable. Today, my guest is Kathy Bryan. Kathy is a pre-K resource teacher at the Early Education Center in Crum ISD. Kathy has been an educator for 30 years. She spent 20 of those years in private education and 10 in public schools. She also has administrative experience. She owns her own school from 2000 to 2007, and she is very passionate about the field of special education. I really hope you enjoy this episode with her. She has lots of experience, wisdom, and education to share with us, Um, and I will be attaching the resources she shared in this episode to the show notes. Thank you so much, and please like our podcast or share some feedback whenever you get a chance. It helps more listeners to hear about us and get to know more about the Autism Hour podcast. Thanks so much. Hi, Kathy, and welcome to the Autism Hour podcast. How are you today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm so glad you're a guest on the podcast today. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, I'm an educator and local school district working with behavior intervention and children with special needs on the early childhood campus, which would be pre-K to first grade. And uh, I've been a teacher or administrator or both for the last 30 years. I primarily was in the private sector with children with learning differences. And uh, I had a child with special needs, not to the severity that I work with, but it stirred in me a passion of that every child had something that they could contribute and offer. We just had to find out how they learned. Okay. And so that has brought us to this point. Okay. Can you tell us what school district you're in? Yes. It's a Crum Independent School District right outside of Denton. Okay, great. And tell us a little bit more about your specific classroom. The classroom that I have now, we are, uh, again, considered behavior intervention, but also K-1 resource. And right now, I work primarily with the kindergartners, anywhere from uh, just academic intervention all the way to behavior intervention and resource the children that need to pull out. Uh, this year, most of our children are able to be serviced a lot in the classroom, which is great for the inclusion model. But uh, our district has been very supportive in helping us equip our rooms and classrooms with things that our special needs kiddos need, lots of sensory items, lots of uh, intervention curriculum. So we've been very supported in that direction. That's great. And what kinds of disabilities do your students have? Uh, This year, they range differently year to year. We could have have some that are medically fragile. We have uh, emotional disturbance. We have uh, several autistic children with um, the autistic spectrum disorder Mm -hmm. that's manifested different ways. Uh, This year has been more of an academic intervention, and so we haven't had the high-level behavior needs, but we are prepared for those as well. Okay. So what does a typical day in your um, role look like? I have to laugh. A typical day doesn't ever happen. But for the most most part, this year um, is bringing, I have probably four students that I bring out for different amounts of time during the week for one-to-one intervention 
academically, uh, and then probably six that we monitor in the classroom on the kindergarten hall. My colleague on the first grade hall has a similar workload. Like this year, we don't have what we would call a higher impact, either medical fragile or an emotional disturbance to the degree that we are monitoring behaviors. Okay. Uh, We have had a higher need in preschool this year of those types of behaviors. And so uh, myself and my colleague oversee and help support the uh, SPED teachers on the pre-K level because the experience, uh, we've had more experience with how to look and support those children uh, with some of the teachers who haven't been in that area that long. Okay. Have you had or in the past or do you currently have any students who have autism? Yes. Uh, this year we have uh, probably four on our campus. Okay. That to varying degrees. Uh, we have most of ours are high functioning. Um, last year we had one very severe that was just uh, a one-to-one instruction. In fact, sometimes two-to-one instruction. Okay. And he, he has now been able to be a part of another program that works specifically with ABA therapy and helping support him. And we have stayed in contact with that program and even gone and observed so that we can be prepared when that student transitions back to us next year. Okay. So that's been something that's been uh, very important because we consider them all our children. Mm -hmm. And when some of them leave and are able, because that's the best place for them at that time, but then to be ready for them when they come back. Mm -hmm. And what type of program is he currently in, that student? He's in the... uh, UNT's Christian Farmer Autism Center. Yeah, that's great. And we've been there to observe, and they were very pleased and um, were actively pursuing what that would look like when that student is able to transition back to our program probably next year. That's great. Have you guys had any training from the district on how to implement ABA strategies? We haven't specifically in the district. uh, Again, we are looking for, in fact, we're getting ready to start writing a grant to be able to pursue some training Okay. Uh, this summer specifically for that because it's all of us have continued our CEU hours. We work with Region, Le- Region 11 as our umbrella mm-hmm. center, service okay. center. And so most of us have tried to take just about what all they have Uh, in being able to help our children with autism, whether it's setting up the visual strategies Mm -hmm. in the classroom. But the pure ABA therapy is a longer, more intensive time. Mm -hmm. And, again, it's great working with colleagues that want to do and pursue that. And so we've been very active um, with our Crumb Education Foundation, which provides funds uh, for teachers and students and part of that is training so we're currently writing a grant to be able to have some in-depth training this summer in ABA therapy. Great that's really exciting. Um, As far as working with the students with autism that you have had in the past what types of strategies have you used with those students? Probably one of the biggest things that we believe in and do is meeting their sensory needs Okay. because until 
they can feel comfortable in order to feel safe enough to learn and to get that pattern of what learning how they learn. Mm -hmm. And so much of that is equipping them with the sensory kind of tools that they need. And so um, we use everything from depending because each child is different. Mm -hmm. You have some that have the vestibular issues that spinning things that would normally make us wobble and get sick after a ride at the fair Mm -hmm. helps actually calm them down Mm -hmm. and some of them need pressure points they need a lower light classroom they need all uh, different kinds of intervention that allow them then to be able to receive instruction some of them are still on a one-on-one level but then some are actually able to participate in a classroom setting Mm -hmm. which is our goal Absolutely. And you said you have, you practice an inclusion model on your campus. What is, can you tell us more about that? What does that look like? Yes, we do. Um, Again, this year we have one student who has done beautifully, uh, but he was had a lot of early intervention through ABA therapy and his parents very supportive to the point of actually opening a program for that. And that child is completely inclusive and he was, uh, with Teresa Kilgore, my colleague last year, who did an amazing job in facilitating his inclusion and pulling out when he needed and working on the sensory. And he is he is in the classroom now 100% of the time in first grade, which is just exciting to see. And oh, to also see them learn to know what they need when they need a break or where they need a brain break. And we try to give them that vocabulary using a lot of visual strategies. And uh, so it's exciting to see a child begin to take ownership of that and be empowered to be in the classroom all the time. Definitely. Do you feel that the general education teachers on your campus are prepared for that transition when that happens? That is one of the areas that we work on. We have a very supportive staff. Uh, They teachers are comfortable to different degrees of working with children inclusive in their classroom. But we have, again, had very supportive teachers and helping, letting them help us help them. Mm -hmm. And uh, at times there's resistance, just it's, it's never out of anything, but being unsure Mm -hmm. and uh, becoming comfortable and trying to equip. And so a lot of our days, like when you ask about a typical, typical day, a lot of our days we're on our feet all over the building. Okay. So servicing where we need it, supporting the teachers that we have. Absolutely. Okay, well, Kathy, you've worked in several different um, schools. So can you tell us more about your experience in private schools versus public schools? Yes. I uh, I was a parent of a special needs child who is now 32. Okay. Then it was a dyslexia and processing, but even uh, 25 years ago, some of that was new. Okay. And it, as far as being embraced on a larger level. And so uh, some of the roadblocks I faced with her uh, frustrated me that we couldn't be serviced on a private. Public school was very supportive of us. I have come from an education background. Uh, My grandmother was a Dallas teacher and principal for 40 years. My mother was a teacher. 
So we've been really immersed in the public school background, and I was very supportive of that. But at that point, that took me into the private school sector. Okay. And uh, my daughter was in a school for children with dyslexia, which opened me up again into that arena. Mm -hmm. And uh, from there, I saw the need of working privately, the private school model. So what you were able to do was you could primarily the lower teacher ratio, student to teacher ratio, Mm -hmm. and more specific equipping of whatever the children's needs were. Uh, The school that I had the privilege of founding with my mother, we was from 2000 to 2007. We worked with uh, children from gifted all the way to those that struggled. And we modeled our program after a very hands-on, multi-sensory learning. And that was just an area that many strived uh, thrived in there in that environment where they could help each other. And from that position, then I was part of a program in uh, Frisco Plano area that was a private school specifically. Our predominant child profile, student profile, was the autism spectrum disorder okay. with a mood disorder. Okay. And that's a very, very difficult combination to work with. And But, again, I loved and thrived in that because looking and finding out how these children needed to be supported, many were, it took two of us to one child, Mm -hmm. but we would see some breakthroughs and uh, working with them and see them do things that they wouldn't normally be able to do. Yeah, and And, that was a specific school for that population? Yes, it was St. Timothy Academy in Plano, and it is still... um, still a strong program there okay great and then what made you transition back to public schools uh there were some personal situations that i needed to wanted to go ahead and come back into the public needed to come back into the public school uh environment and but wanted to be back in the classroom i had been out in administration for 10 years but I always had my hands in the classroom. But mm-hmm. I came back to Crum ISD in uh, 08, okay. the 08 09 school year, as Kinder First uh, Resource and Special Education. And then the next year, I went into the um, PPCD program, which was working with the early childhood preschool yeah. classes of children with, with special needs. Mm-hmm. Have you been passionate about early education? Is that where most of your experience lies, or did you just happen to be placed in that when you transitioned no. from? Uh, no, early education has always been a really strong uh, part in my own personal life. Okay. My dad is a pastor, and at all of our churches, my mother would open up some child's uh, learning facility, whether it was after school or on Sundays, okay. and so early childhood was a foundation. I've worked all the way up to junior high. The school that I worked with in Plano uh, was head of school all the way to junior high. But what keeps me impassioned about the early childhood is that all the research that we're seeing more and more of, the earlier we can intervene in a child's life, especially the students with this uh, autistic spectrum disorder, Mm -hmm. the difference we can make in their lives is just substantial. 
Absolutely. In the early childhood years. Yeah. And can you tell us about some of the progress you've seen in those years with some of your students with autism specifically? Uh, yes, I can. The students, uh, one, two that stick out are the two that, that I've referenced to you. The fact that okay. uh, what we have is we have students that come to us at different levels of, of exposure uh, we have some students in early childhood, I call us sometimes triage, because we may have children come in for language deprivation issues, but some of them are autism spectrum disorder all the way to Down syndrome to just minor articulation. Mm-hmm. But what we see the students on the autism spectrum disorder is getting to them, and we had one specific student that I'm thinking of now that we actually were a part of his life for four years and he would go he had gone from being under the table and animal noises to actually conversing and helping me lead other reading groups where he felt successful Mm -hmm. and so just that being able to build that camaraderie around these students that's been another unique thing that I have felt that is kind of become our mission on early childhood is to build a peer support group for these students that make the inclusion model that much more successful and actually helps them with a friend base that they might not normally have. Absolutely. And how do you go about building those connections? A lot of times we'll do it through structured play. Okay. And where we will actually find one student maybe in their class that gets along really well with them and, and interacts with them and then we'll remove them and try to set up some constructive play and because as you know many times children on the spectrum they need help with learning how to reciprocate Mm -hmm. and to not parallel play and so that becomes an instruction area just like we might be instructing other children on their letters and sounds Mm -hmm. those our children on the spectrum need to, to know how and what that identify emotion and identify, oh, they're smiling, they're laughing, they're, and give them those kind of vocabulary and scenarios of structured mm-hmm. play. Absolutely. And how do the children who are typically developing respond to this structured play activity? They're amazingly uh, engaging, and children are, they, they come compassionate easily. Sometimes we teach our children not to be compassionate, but in their, depending on their differences the, as to what, how a child might feel uncomfortable, depending on how their particular need is manifesting itself. Mm-hmm. So we try to be very aware of that and uh, then capitalize on those children that are just natural nurturers mm-hmm. and uh, that will help us facilitate drawing that child out and then usually what we see is other children in the classroom follow that pattern mm-hmm. as inclusion as far as within their social circle. Yeah. Do you include the parents of the children um, in this process? Do you talk to the parents of the kids who are typically developing or and or the kids who have autism? Both. Okay. Um, we uh, we have to obviously be, be very careful about our confidentiality mm-hmm. and how we proceed with that. But usually we've gotten permission from a student, a uh, student's parents. I'm thinking of one student in particular who uh, who was typically developing, 
but was extremely compassionate uh, and helpful to one of our students on the spectrum that struggled. And my so I did speak with both parents because I wanted her to the child to know that that was so appreciated but was not expected all the time, mm-hmm. that it was okay for her with typically developing. And the mother was very supportive, and I just told her, you know, as long as she would let me know um, that that child wasn't her responsibility all day long, but she loved being with him. And he responded she could even calm him down. So uh, the level that we interact with the parents is usually kind of paramount to how uh, substantial their manifestations are in the classroom. Okay. there are times that we will go talk to a class if we have a child that, you know, calls out or yells or runs or any different kind of ways that outbursts can manifest. Mm-hmm. We'll talk to the kids sometimes by themselves or as a class, as a whole, without that student there mm-hmm. to raise their comfort level in dealing with those behaviors and not being frightened. Mm-hmm. And they're usually very, very receptive and then even helpful. That's great. Do you do anything to raise awareness about specific disabilities on your campus? So, like, have, like, an autism awareness project or anything like that? Well, we're working on right now. We have, uh, we haven't done anything directly student-led. We usually do that, usually uh, uh, go speak to that class, whatever class, if there's mm-hmm. a special uh, situation in that class. One of the exciting things that we're working on right now is in January uh, a autism spectrum disorder symposium that's come about a relationship with a parent of a student of ours who's actually written the book and uh, we have an ongoing relationship there and just in the conversations about six weeks ago I said this we need to we need to do take this to more people because there's such a need for parents that don't have information mm-hmm. um, early on. And I'm very aware of that in the public school. You'll have quite a range of how the parents are equipped or not. And, um, and it's a scary path. And most of the times we're the first ones wa- walking alongside mm-hmm. when we begin to find out some of the diagnosis. So we're excited to be, uh, in partnership with UMT's Kristen Farmer program, uh, some of the leadership there is interested in coming to our district and speaking, and we're putting together a parent panel. And, again, we just have this started, so I'm really excited uh, for that for our community in school and mm-hmm. uh, families and students at large. Yes, that's, up. that's so great. I um, remember when I was a teacher – um, just trying to raise awareness on my campus with my general education teachers and my administration and all of the general education students. Um, it was just so necessary and important to raise an awareness with them and just educate and um, just share information so people were more comfortable around my students who had um, a variety of disabilities. So that's great that you guys are seeking ways to do that as well. So, and we're hoping what grows from that, <clears throat> and I still uh, have relationships and consult on a private level as well with programs and um, and in the community and different community uh, groups that have and church and different ways of just uh, expanding the community of 
information and knowledge and how we can support the children and the family of, of these students. Absolutely. What are some um, of the biggest challenges you think our society poses on individuals with disabilities? Um, I think probably the biggest challenge challenges are being able to identify what level of need there is and finding what instructional strategies will help um, mm-hmm. that individual child. Um, you know, we face some of the same things on in public school that many face, and that's staffing and adequate staffing and materials. And um, it, it can vary from one year to the next. It can vary from month to month. I had a student that was very high need, um, but that start began the school year, and you get your, thing, your system going. And then a move was involved, and so then you have to reshuffle. But um, I think the the most challenging is is gathering first, identifying, and then gathering and setting up the program that might help that child, because it may be completely different than the next child. Absolutely. What are some of the reasons you think there are such high turnover rates with teachers, specifically in special education? I think the fact that the intensity uh, of the work Mm -hmm. and what we are seeing, not that special education students have ever been typical or traditional, but we are getting so many different uh, multiple modalities of, of challenges. It's not just autism spectrum disorder. And as we know, because it's called a spectrum, we can have very high functioning to very profound uh, impacts, but then we are also seeing combinations of issues, either emotional disturbance along with the spectrum issues. And and I think that's part of the level that's very difficult for teachers to be able to know. And quite honestly, it's gotten very physical as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's, you know, I, in my personal philosophy, uh, special education is not a certification. It is a philosophy and a passion. Mm-hmm. And that those, that embracing is what it takes to get through some of the days. And that it's difficult and it's not for everyone mm-hmm. in the teaching community. I think that's definitely true and evidenced by people who um, take a special education position just for the job. I think oftentimes um, do not have a desire to stay in that position for very long for that reason, because I think it really does take somebody who's passionate about the children and um, passionate about really helping and assisting those children and supporting them um, to want to stay in that position for an extended period of time. So, I can... And that because very, it becomes a, a difficult situation for everyone mm-hmm. and uh, having to be there and, and that's what I've seen and, um, and that's why this year I've been blessed <clears throat> to be with a colleague who actually started as a paraprofessional and was just enraptured by the passion of it and mm-hmm. how we do and what we do and uh, then to now be able to work, work alongside as co-colleagues and um, and every year, people that come and those that have 
the passion for working with the students. And uh, one of the other difficulties is we live in a very litigious society and working with the parents, and there's sometimes a fear of working at this level, um, of this level of behavior, regardless of what may be the base of it. <clears throat> so, but on the other hand, there's so much exciting research coming out and uh, such an openness for dialogue. And again, I'm blessed to be in a district that supports and will listen um, to what, not just my input, but anyone on that are working with the special education team. And I'm very involved on the district level okay. that way. Mm-hmm. Do you spend a lot of time looking at research and digesting that information? I do to the degree. A lot of times that's more of what I have in the summer. Okay. <laughs> but yeah. uh, there's, but I do uh, have several uh, specific areas I go and, and looking again. Brain research has always intrigued me, and that's what I'm looking at, even studying um, in postgraduate work more has okay. always intrigued, especially uh, just not autism, but all of the issues that children are faced with coming through uh, special education. Okay. And I, so I try to stay as up and abreast as I can of what current information and resources are out there. Absolutely. Do you have any specific resources you typically turn to to find new information? Uh, the ARC of Texas is a group that um, in the inclusion model, and again, not just autistic children, I they're one of the ones I get a lot of information from because they have, there's a legislative uh, leg that goes with it as well as parental support and mm-hmm. as well as uh, lots of different areas, and I have found that to be a good source to go to. Okay. Um, the, I was trying to think that one of the groups that, uh, and the acronym is now completely escaped me, but yes, that try to, it's important to me to see what's going on organizationally, both in education and the TEA. And mm-hmm. um, again, I'm active in seeking the information from Region 11, and I've been very pleased with the information that's available to us in the training. Good. And um, I've also done, because I am behavior intervention along with and that spectrum disorder students are, are part of that, I do a lot with uh, uh, PBIS, which is just the positive uh, interventions mm-hmm. for beha- positive behavior interventions. And all of those cross all of the children, regardless of what their structure mm-hmm. uh, that they have to, just the positive outreach to have the, uh, the visuals and to have the support and lots of different, uh, again, that's for one of the visual strategy classrooms. Again, so many of these fit so many children's needs. Even mm-hmm. a traditional student mm-hmm. is best served in that kind of environment, a very hands-on environment. Absolutely. That's great. Um, Kathy, what are your goals for the future? You are obviously very passionate about serving individuals with disabilities. So what do you hope to do in the future? Well, um, you know, I'm plus the 50 mark. I'm <laughs> looking towards, um, I love being a part 
uh, again, being in the, the classroom, my plans would probably have back into administration just for, you know, there are nuts and bolts of our retirement and all, but my passion outside of working with the children is working with the adults that work with the children. Mm-hmm. And so I'm pursuing some avenues both within the school system and without the school system about equipping adults okay. and information for parents and support uh, and will probably lean more and more that direction uh, because I think the more equipping we have, the better we can serve these children. Yeah, definitely. What have been some of your aha moments um, during your time teaching or in administration or when you owned your own school? What are some of those big moments that have furthered your passion in this field? I think more than anything was just the need to be flexible mm-hmm. and that I just shared with a group of teachers the other day about a student that, you know, you have these students that just crystallize things in you about what you're doing. And it was an older junior high student and we were both kind of at the end of our rope that day and said something to make the comment, I need you to sit up and listen. Mm-hmm. And he said, Miss Brian, you're going to have to choose. I can sit up or I can listen, but I can't do both. <laughs> that <laughs> so, is great. <laughs> this is a child that he would learn. That, I mean, he could crawl on the floor, be on a beanbag, maybe have no eye contact, but he knew the answer he needed to move. And that's 10 years ago. And so, wow. um, and I try to convey that the teachers as well, that some kids, and we've come a long way in that area, you know, that what a child needs, that how important movement is and how important mm-hmm. uh, the brain, again, back to brain research, that's been some of the other aha moments, just crossing the midline and that how much there is to do to get a child ready to learn, that's whether they're typically developing or their learning is challenged Mm -hmm. and uh, it's neat to see I'm real proud of our campus uh, in doing that we've got lots of brain research innovation um, uh, research-based strategies that go on in every classroom Mm -hmm. and so that makes it much easier to support a child in an inclusion model uh, when you have stuff that will assist them and everybody else is doing it because it's just a best practice teaching. Mm-hmm. I think you're right, and I think it's important that we maintain that flexibility, and I, I think that our society has come a long way, and just picking your battles, I think, is part of that, right? What What is really important for the student to know and how, how important is it for them to sit in a chair rather than on a couch or on a beanbag, you know? So... I like that you made that point. I think flexibility is key. And it's especially with our with our children that need support. It's it's such a fine line. You need structure and predictability, but yet with flexibility. Mm-hmm. And that's usually a lot of times you'll have one or the other as your strong suit as a teacher. Mm-hmm. And uh, I know I I'm one of those that I really had to work at organization and and classroom management and consistency but yet I because I could be flexible all day long Mm -hmm. and so it's they finding that balance for the children that they do have some of the flexibility but they do need the routine and consistency and um, so when you see a classroom that is working that way it's an amazing I have one that I 
in just this morning, and I thought, this is just a machine. If I could, any child I had, run them through this classroom. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it was just uh, primarily brain-based teaching, and she's wonderfully consistent at that, and the children just thrive in there. That's so encouraging, and I can speak to the other end of that. I think my strong suit is definitely with structure and routine and consistency, and so for me in the classroom, I really had to learn how to um, be flexible with my expectations more than anything and really understand what was important for my students to learn, so... That is just such a key point. That, that is hard. Mm-hmm. And know that it's okay. They may, you may talk to their feet, but they're listening. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> Kathy, can you tell me a little bit more about how you interact with the parents of the students you work with? Yes. Um, that's something I've always believed in and been a part of. And it's been interesting. We've, you know, Education goes in waves and cycles, Mm -hmm. and there was a while, especially if you were working with special needs or those that needed support, that there wasn't the freedom there to discuss all of that. We were trying through the school system and what meeting the needs of the child looked like and what was the services would be available. And now that pendulum is swinging back, and it's much more encouraging to know to have the parents a part of the process of whether you're developing the IEP, the individual education plan, Mm -hmm. or being a part of the ARD or coming in and they know I have an open policy to come watch and do a part. And um, I even have them tell me if they're having struggles with something at home that I would see what I could do to help is something that maybe I knew worked in the classroom and helped them implement something at home, mm-hmm. especially on like visual schedules and how do I handle a tough situation, you know, expectation that may be a routine at night. So I I always have made a real effort to connect with the parents. And again, like I said, what I found here on the early childhood level Many times this is just the beginning of a long journey and to equip and walk alongside and encourage parents and um, depending on what the diagnosis that they may have received with the child, helping them along whatever that path is and being a support to them and that this we still have a beautiful, wonderful uh, little individual life. We're just having to learn how to teach them and help them differently mm-hmm. than a traditionally, typically advancing student. Yeah. Do you find that parents typically struggle when they receive um, information about a diagnosis at first? Yes. Yes. I do. Um, in my experience, usually it's harder for the dads. Okay. Uh, again, depending on what it is, um, it's not uncommon for a mom to say, I knew something was going on, I just wasn't sure what. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there's times that parents are very resistant. And our responsibility is still to support that child as best we can, even though from our perspective we may have an idea of what may be going on with that child just from years and years of experience. Mm-hmm. But um, I've always told my teachers and colleagues that I work with, 
about respecting the role of the parent and helping and facilitating. And sometimes it's a journey in these early years and that we are here as much to help the parent as we are the student mm-hmm. uh, move ahead and move forward. Yes, and that's that parental support is so important. I think a lot of times during that process, parents can feel really isolated and like they don't have many people to turn to who really understand what's going on. So being able to turn to a professional, I think, is invaluable for those parents. So I, yeah. I've, I've found that in my experience as well. Well, because many times, again, we have the child for eight hours of the day, mm-hmm. but the parent is with the child in every different social situation that impacts their ability to go out socially or to go to church or to go to all of they have this child to come with them and take through life. And it's not just the eight hours they're with us. And so I believe in, believe in trying to support the families as we support the children as well. Yes, definitely. And I mean, ultimately, without consistency across environments, you're not really able to support the children either. So it's valuable on both sides. So, um, well, we're coming to the end. My last question for you is what piece of advice would you give to another educator? I think I would, the biggest advice uh, would be that nothing that, we can do with the children. We don't. We're not in the business to fix children. We are there for them to identify and to do the best we can with each child every day. Mm-hmm. But that it is a process, and that as many years as I've done this, it's still a new beginning of a school year. And that you have to get to know a child to know how to help a child. Mm-hmm. And that it is a journey. It's a, a marathon, not a sprint mm-hmm. in, in our field. I love that. Um, I especially love the part about not trying to fix children. I think that's sometimes a stigma associated with individuals with disabilities is we have to fix them. But I very much don't believe that that is the case. I I um, very much agree with you that we it is our job to identify strengths and identify what works best for that child and just support them in the best way we can um, on yes. their journey and equip them with um, the resources they need to achieve what they can achieve in the world. So um, I think that's a great piece of advice. Okay. I do. And I, I every year, I have always said they teach me more than I've ever taught them. Mm-hmm. And it happens every year with every student. Absolutely. Well, Kathy, thank you so much for coming on the Autism Hour podcast today. I think the listeners will really be able to benefit from your expertise and wisdom and all of your experience, your years and years of experience. It's really impressive um, and rare to find somebody who's been in the field as long as you have. So um, I'm very grateful for your perspective. Well, thank you so much. I'm so honored to to even have uh, been able to be a part and I will continue to support in any way I can all the work that I'm going to do and all the programs because it's exciting to see. And I thank you so much for what you're doing in that arena as well. Oh, thank you. Um, And I, again, just appreciate all you're doing. So thank you so much. I'll, um, I'm going to share the resources, some of those resource, resources you've mentioned today in the show notes of our episodes that listeners can find those resources and websites. Um, but thank you so much for coming on the Autism Hour podcast. 
I will, and I'll update those uh, resources for you to pass along. Great. Thank you so much.